Good afternoon, everybody. This is uh, Christian Thwaites, Marit Brown Janikowski. Welcome to our monthly market update. I think we have all of the technology squared away from different locations. So hopefully you're seeing up on your slide, um, up on your screen, uh, the market uh, update webinar with a, with a nice um, cityscape of San Francisco. Um, so this is our monthly um, update of what's going on in the markets and our kind of uh, outlook for the next month or so. Obviously, we're going to have a fairly big challenge in November. We're down to the last uh, three weeks of uh, in a prehistorical election, as, as many of you know, and I won't try to recap the uh, political political uh, news on this, but um, volatility has been pretty high recently. And the outcome of the election, I think the market is is not particularly concerned whether it's one or the other. It seems to be pointing towards more of a democratic sweep, um, but uh, it's more how the election will be will be uh, fought and challenged um, in subsequent weeks and months. And the the only sort of real precedent that we have for this is in the last couple of months of um, 2020, going into the uh, the Gore Bush election, which wasn't a particularly happy time for the markets. There were other things going on as well, which which. Uh, which also affected it, but I think definitely the um, the eight weeks we had of counting chads and re-elections and court challenges and eventually up in the Supreme Court was pretty unnerving. Um, whether or not we'll go through the same sort of thing this this month, um, this year remains to be seen, but I think that's what is, uh, is probably keeping the markets a little bit on edge right now. Um, and we've certainly noticed an uptick in volatility. So we're gonna have a big challenge in November, but let's look at some, some of the you know other backgrounds to the market and where we are. So a quick summary summary of uh, of where we are uh, here we are in the sort of middle of October almost you know six six seven months away from the inception of uh, COVID which we all thought was going to be fairly short and has obviously turned into something fairly permanent in all of our lives um, and indeed in the wider economy. So what we're seeing, of course, is that the uh, labour market took a, a tremendous beating in uh, April and May with um, with non farm payrolls collapsing by nearly twenty million. Um, in a couple of months, and then another uh, a million or so after that. It's a very slow recovery. It is not V-shaped. It's sort of got halfway up the V on the labor market recovery. Um, I think out of the net jobs loss was approximately 24 million. We've recovered uh, some about 12 of them. So um, it's been slow to recover. Nothing really suggests that this is going to have a rapid improvement due to the various close downs around the country. Um, and obviously some industries operating way below capacity the demand for labor is going to remain pretty sluggish for some time out. I think uh, <clears throat> to state the obvious, perhaps everything depends on the virus we're managing for now. Uh, there have been some upticks in case rates and positivity test rates and things like that. Um, and I noticed that you know, some of the um, uh, states which really didn't get hit the first time around, so the Dakotas and Indiana and Wisconsin and so on, are, uh, are, are having a much uh, tougher time right now. <clears throat> The Fed has expanded its role and somewhat of its mandate. Um, it's changed its mandate. Uh, I give full plaudits to the Fed for stepping in very quickly back in February with that famous uh, Sunday uh, change and decision in the uh, federal funds rate. I think they've stood behind the market at every turn they can, and they've offer, op offered as much support you know, in the uh, financial markets and with monetary policy uh, as is possible. They can't do it all. And they've stressed that role many, many times. But for now, they stand as a, as a pretty good uh, backstop to the market. And at least it removes one area of uncertainty. <clears throat> Congress clearly 
Uh, I had thought that with the expiry of the PPP, the, uh, the, um, the guaranteed payroll program for smaller companies um, and the supplemental $600 uh, unemployment insurance benefits, which expired in July, would have been uh, reinstated or you know, partially reinstated by now. They have not been. Um, there was a temporary fix with the White House moving some funds from uh, FEMA, I think it was, over to the DOL. Um, but those expired pretty quickly. Um, so, so at the moment, the expired benefits are, are going to take a big chunk out of personal income levels. We've seen some recent improvements in the economy. They're real, uh, but they're slow. Uh, housing and autos and some retail sales have, have rebounded. You know, you'll see in a minute that housing and autos are at a very, very strong rates. That's a good sign. Uh, and some retail sales have actually done pretty well. And there's been more of a mix of a change in the mix of retail sales. So obviously a lot less um, eating out, a lot more eating in, a lot less uh, um, physical retail stores sales and a lot more internet and delivery retail stores. So uh, if you kind of add all those together, you know, there's been some net beneficiaries of that and obviously some that have been hurt pretty badly. But on the capital expenditure, manufacturing and trade, they're all, they're all pretty weak. We had one of the worst trade numbers in nearly 15 years published the other, the other month. And that's that's in a month or a year when obviously the uh, Chinese uh, agreements on extra purchases of mostly US agricultural goods was meant to have kicked in. They have not. So trade remains pretty weak. Uh, and the US is actually in a rather interesting situation because of the stimulus, which, which was pretty big. It's actually sucked in imports more than, more than would have been expected. And we haven't been able to you know, export the typical things that the US is good at, which is capital expenditure and transportation and airlines and aircraft and so on like that. Uh, so a lot of that has meant that the trade side has, has become a net weakener for the, for the economy and probably will be for the rest of the year. <clears throat> there is an increase in the treasury debt. It's been mostly financed by the Fed for now. I mean, it's not a straight dollar for dollar, but every increase in the, in the federal debt uh, is essentially being uh, purchased um, uh, on the secondary market by the treasury. So it's not a source of worry, I think. We're used to uh, from the 70s and 80s and 90s and debt clocks and Rogoff studies and everything else to be very worried about. GDP to debt ratios, but I think, uh, you know, net, net, they're not that important. Uh, right now, it's much more important to keep the economy going uh, and moving uh, rather than have it kind of stall out completely. And also, of course, the interest rates, the nominal and the real rates on the treasury debt have never been lower. So from that perspective, it's a, it's a good move for the treasury to increase its debt through fiscal stimulus. I don't think there's any likelihood of us getting back to the 2020 to uh, pre-COVID levels until at least 2021, and that might continue to shift. It's been slow to come about. And unemployment, we're going to be living with our, you know, fairly high unemployment, uh, high unemployment for quite a while. The headline unemployment's around about 8%, 7.5%. It's come down, but uh, I, I think that's a little misleading because there's a lot of people who've voluntarily taken themselves out of the employment market yet could come back. So there's a lot of slack in the employment market. They're coming back. They've taken themselves out because they haven't been able to you know, rejoin their companies. And so they're not looking actively looking for work, which means they're not counted as employed uh, or they are you know, temporarily, hopefully not able to uh, participate because of things like daycare and childcare and school, closed, uh, uh, closed schools. So the, uh, the wider unemployment number is more like 11 or 12. 
And I think that's probably what it's going to stay out for quite a while. Remember, it took an awful long time to, to come down after 2008, 2009. This is a different type of shock, but I think unemployment is going to take a, a while to tick down significantly. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, risk assets are very skittish. Uh, we've seen you know, days of very high volatility. Um, we've just come off a good five-day run in the S&P and the small company area, um, mostly because of the, um, the feeling that there's going to be a... Um, basically a, you know a clean sweep uh, through uh, through November and that means uh, a much better outlook for some economic stimulus um, which at the moment of course is hung up and not going to go through um, and as I mentioned earlier the elections are a, an area of some concern uh, historically election years haven't been that interesting for markets uh, you know, there's been some moves around elections but there haven't been huge gains winners and losers that you can count off with with a lot of certainty and say, oh, well, the market moved because you know, the outcome of the election was different from what people thought. Um, actually, the averages for um, moves in election years are very, very similar to other years as well. So um, uh, I, I don't think it's, it's a major concern here about whether it's one administration or another. Quite frankly, they're both one side is pretty moderate. The other one's kind of shown his cards in wanting to deregulate and lower taxes. And so either side essentially uh, would, would be um, not too dissimilar in terms of the outcome of the market, but obviously uh, there's a big concern about you know, how the election is, um, is composed and what the immediate aftermaths of the, uh, of the counting will be. Okay, so just to touch on a few obvious things, uh, you know, interesting this slide uh, really hasn't changed much other than a number of days along the um, x-axis it continues to extend I mean you can see there that um, you know Europe uh, had a much higher peak it's then kind of crawled back up as, as some parts of Europe took a first wave other parts of Europe like France and Spain and to extend even Italy at the bottom there took a you know uh, are beginning to see a little bit of an uptick note this is a log graph so their numbers are going up in the case of Italy from uh, you know, 10 to 20. So it looks, sounds pretty dramatic and it, and it is, but in absolute numbers, the numbers are uh, still pretty low. And there's the United States. Uh, and I think we all know that this curve has really, you know, been very stubborn to break. And um, it's, it looks very different from state to state, but, um, but overall we're, uh, you know, we're right up there. And as long as that happens, then uh, regardless of whether there are official close downs or voluntary ones, uh, there's large parts of the sectors of the markets and the economy which aren't just going to function at their full capacity. Um, these are some of the uh, increases uh, in the US. So again, uh, kind of kind of a busy slide, but um, you know, I kind of take your eye down to the bottom left-hand side, and you've kind of got you know the daily daily changes, some of the uh, hospitalizations, and they've ticked up really. And then you've got a number of those states I mentioned earlier, uh, the Dakotas, Wisconsin, Wyoming, Arkansas, and so on, which are seeing a fairly big uh, tick up in, uh, in, in, in the uh, number, of, number of cases. And a number of these cases, a number of these uh, states are also testing way above 10% in terms of positivity rate. And WHO puts 10% as a threshold for alarming. I think uh, California is around about two and a half. Um, so, you know, there is a wide discrepancy between those states which uh, seem to have some control over the spread uh, of COVID and others which are taking a different approach. So uh, as a, you know, on a national basis, you know, we're still not out of the woods. 
As I mentioned earlier, the Federal Reserve is really on point. There's a very dramatic increase in the balance sheet kicked off right uh, in, in uh, early 2020, uh, just after the uh, first hits of COVID and the balance sheet, you know, went from four to six trillion in the, in the space of um, a, a couple of months. It's, it's, it's leveled off a little bit. They're still adding to the, uh, to the Federal Reserve balance sheet. This essentially they're buying this blue line, the blue is just what they're buying in mortgage-backed securities and federal debt treasuries. Yeah, everything from you know 30-day bills all the way out to 30-year, or they tend to sort of buy at the shorter end than the longer end. And then you can see the annual change year over year, 79%, pretty much the same as it was uh, in September. So we'll, we'll see a flattening out of that. Um, and uh, you know, you can see the weekly changes come down quite a bit as well. That's the black black line. So they're still there. The, the number is still very large and they're adding to it in a kind of a systematic and predictable way. And they're they're on point. They're doing what they need to do and they're going to be committed to it. <clears throat> the uh, since since we met last time, the uh, tr the uh, there's really been very little change in the uh, in the major 10 year, uh, 30 year and two year notes. The 10-year note has come up a little bit in the last uh, few weeks from about 65 basis points. It hit as low as half a percent, 50 basis points, it's ticked up. I think some of that's just more seasonal and a feeling that there might be a, a little bit more inflation than there was. I mean, COVID was a very much a deflationary um, uh, event. Uh, so um, the, the feeling is that there might be a little bit more inflation from you know, a, much, a much lower base. Um, but really, that's that, that that those numbers are still pretty low, and you can see that the black line is uh, with the ten-year benchmark is really sort of moving between a fairly night tight band. Don't really expect much of that to change in the, on the treasury side. Um, yeah, the uh, Fed came out at the end of August with a kind of an interesting restatement of its goals. It's always had full employment. Uh, and you know managing inflation, they haven't usually put numbers around it. Although the inflation numbers always perceived to be around about two percent, um, and it's kind of stable monetary policy. Those are their goals. They tried to put a bit more flesh around it in in August by saying essentially they would be looking at average inflation. So you know it, before the thinking was at the minute inflation popped up two percent, the Fed would be you know ready to hit the brakes. And they said, no, 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 we're going to let it run over 2%, so we get an average of 2%. Now, they made sure not to specify what they meant by an average. Is it three-month average, one-month average, one-year average, two-year average? It doesn't really, uh, not, we don't need the specificity right now. All we needed to know was that they're going to allow inflation to move at above 2% in a, if, uh, without slamming on the brakes. Now, <laughs> so the other one is what they considered to be full employment, which is around about 4%. It's always some unemployment in the in the in the in the economy as people moving from job to job or things closing down before people move on to find new jobs. So, you know, zero uh, um, full employment and zero unemployment are not the same thing. Uh, so the unemployment number, which they kind of talked about, was four point one percent. Well, here we just look back and just look, okay, how many times did we hit unemployment at four point one percent and inflation at two percent? The answer is, you know, four times in the last. Uh, you know, nearly 70 years. So this is not, um, what they're really saying is that this is, the, these are two numbers which don't get hit very often, which means that for the Fed, they're not going to be wanting to move anything on the uh, on the rate side until we're at least converging towards those two numbers. Right now we're on, you know, at eight and 1.3. So that is a very, very long way from having those two lines 
you know, hit four and two respectively, which is I've shown in the shaded bits. So, uh, you know, expect rates to remain low for a very long time. The labor market, my gosh, it has been very slow to come back. This is again a, um, a log graph. So over on the left-hand side, for most of the last two or three years, we've been looking at, you know, uh, new claims at about 200, 230,000. A bad month might be 250,000 a week. Uh, they obviously skyrocketed um, in the weeks right after the pandemic, you know, six, six, six million, three uh, prints at five, four, three, and then it's slowly come down. And you can see most of the improvement was done by August. And then since then, it's been pretty flat. I mean, it's come down a little bit, 1.1, and then it's in the you know high hundreds and it's kind of stuck around there. But for those of you who read the blog will know that this is only half the story because there's at least the same number depending on the week, who are filing for a different type of claim, the PUA claim, which is the Pandemic uh, Unemployment Assistance Program, which, uh, which is for people who are not typically eligible for these types of claims where you have to, you have to pay it into the Social Security and Unemployment Reserve Fund. Uh, so for gig workers and those um, uh, self-employed who wouldn't normally be eligible for the claims, this PUA program was set up. And the number is roughly the same. Uh, it depends on the actual month, but uh, on the actual week. But uh, the story here is that you know it's been a very slow uh, market to come back, as, uh, and and uh, we seem to be kind of stuck in this eight hundred thousand. And uh, just as a way of context, the highest number we ever had before was a single month of six hundred eighty thousand back in two thousand and eight, and a similar one in nineteen eighty one. So these very unusual numbers, uh, and they're kind of sticking around here. So this labour market is in flux, very slow to come back. These are the new farm payrolls. Uh, again, apologize for the uh, axis. You can see that we had, you know, an 800, way down the bottom, the blue bars with the broken jagged bits in you know, 800,000, 22 million. And then we go back up to, uh, you know, 4 million, 5 million. And the last one, uh, last uh, couple of weeks ago was 660,000. Now this is the last um, non-farm payroll print before the election. Uh, the 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 report comes out on the first Friday of the month, and this year that Friday is uh, on the Friday after the election, which is on Tuesday. So it won't be. This is the last one that's um, that's kind of available for anyone to use to their discretion. But uh, this is not again healing particularly well. Um, you know, we need a lot more job numbers uh, to be able to get back to where we are. If you kind of net all these out, we, so we, we've lost about 22, 23 million jobs. We've regained about 10 or 11, so a long, a long way off. Um, the, uh, the, I, I do put the hourly earnings in here, which have a big spike. It looks at the bottom, 4.6%, but um, those are very, very distorted right now because a lot of people, um, the job, the job losses were primarily at the lower ends of the earnings spectrum, so they were taken out. It left a pool of higher-paid uh, people uh, left who are being measured. So it'd be the equivalent of Bill Gates walked. Uh, if, if Bill Gates was in a stadium, and everyone else walked out, and he was left by himself. He'd be, you know, the average income of the entire group would go up just because you'd taken out the lower paid. So. Uh, we got to, you know, treat some of these numbers with a pinch of salt, given given what the uh, the scale of the um, shutdown and the effects. This makes us a bit nervous. You know, permanent job losses really happen when uh, a company goes bankrupt, company calls it quits, company gets merged, closes a plant, closes an office, closes a store, closes a regional hub. You know, all those ones which say this job isn't coming back, and they've begun to creep up, as you would expect. I mean, the first 
time round was like taking a forced vacation for three weeks, a month, six weeks. But then there are some companies which are just not going to be able to come back again at the levels that they used to before. I mean, think of like an airline or a hotel, which um, can only keep its full staffing uh, complement, um, uh, you know, uh, for, for, for a limited time before that's going to start bleeding red ink. And so uh, eventually these uh, job losses seep over and as permanent job losses. And this is a concern because it means that people are out of the labor force for longer. It's harder for them to find jobs that match their skills without having to move or you know, do some other fairly big things in their lifestyle. So again, we're kind of watching this one because if the number of permanent job losses increases, then you know, consumer confidence goes down. Um, we had this enormous uh, GDP decline, 31%. Uh, the current expectations over on the right-hand side are about 26% for the first quarter. Now, this number will come out for the third quarter. The first print for the third quarter is very much an estimate. It's come out at the end of this month, and there will be discussions about, oh, we've had the best GDP quarter on record. Uh, that's true. Um, it will be a, a pretty big number but it won't be anything like enough to um, recover what's been lost where we had a you know, minus five and a, and a minus 31. So just kind of watch out for those headlines. There'll be a lot of um, you know, um, bragging rights and then corrections and things like that. But, uh, but basically the economy is gonna be down about 9% this year. These are all annualized numbers, but I'll just kind of take it into kind of more understandable numbers. Economy's gonna be down about you know, eight or 9%. Uh, there'll be some slow recovery uh, coming back in the third quarter, which is now finished, of course, um, but it's going to be a little bit slower in the fourth quarter. We've kind of penciled in, uh, you know, four, four and a half percent. It, it might be a bit lower than that. We'll have to kind of see how the labor market works out over the next couple of months. Um, this is the uh, just the number of people employed. It, you know, it fell this uh, you know, so about the, the, the workforce as a percentage of the population is about you know, fell below 52%. It's been going down for a number of years, uh, you know, peaked in 2000 actually at about 64% for a number of reasons, some, some demographic uh, participation rate has, has come down quite a bit. Uh, it took a big hit in the 2008 crisis, clawed its way back to about 60, 61% and obviously took a big hit. Now it is coming back relatively quickly, but this is a function of how many people take themselves out of the labor market. But the bottom line, of course, is that less people are working um, and we haven't yet got anything like back the number of jobs that we lost. Again, these are all uh, these are just the, the same number, but by different cohorts. So the uh, the, 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 the top line, the, uh, the, the sorry, the blue line is the 25 to 34. And that took a big hit uh, from you know, about 83 percent to 80 percent. These have all come down in different age groups. The only one that's shown any resilience is the. Uh, recently is the 50, 45 to 54. So again, this is a recession where younger people, lower paids, uh, and in jobs with a lot of you know, forward client, forward facing types of businesses, those are the ones that have been hit the most. These are some of the uh, um, sort of current activities that you can track on a you know, daily basis and see if the recovery is coming up. They all pretty much tell the same story. This is the TSA checkpoints up here. Uh, so there's a number of T TSA passengers coming um, compared to blue. The blue line was 2019. There's some seasonality in here. People travel a little bit more in the summer, a little bit less in the, in the fall. Um, and then this is the 
this is kind of what it is, the bottom line in, uh, in, in 2020. So it bottomed out early in April, May, it's come back a little bit, but it's essentially flat. Hotel occupancy, same story, they plummeted to, uh, uh, you know, to you know, very, very low levels. This is a percent of the, of the 2009 levels. So they were at one point 20%, 80% below the 2019 level, sorry. They have increased a little bit, but most hotels are, are, are around about 50% of capacity. And finally, this is the number of commercial flights, not passenger flights, but commercial flights, which are you know, around the world, which are FedEx and UPS and similar types of companies, which are hauling uh, you know, high value traded goods around the, around the world. And they, uh, they, the number of flights, you know, typically is about 100, 125,000 um, uh, a day. And, uh, and they obviously fell by a large amount, about 25,000. They're slightly, they're back, but again, you see the same, same story in all of these. Nice recovery, but stalled out. One thing, moving to the consumer, because we really have to think about the consumer in, uh, when we talk about the economy and the markets, is the uh, uh, consumers are very nervous about taking on debt. So this is revolving and non-revolving debt. It's not mortgage debt. Um, it's typically uh, credit cards, auto loans, home equity loans, um, you know, the loans which sort of uh, affect consumption. And uh, the this is the change in the month, you know, in uh, in. In, in billions. And so you can see over on the far right-hand side, essentially people have, um, have done what they tend to do in recessions, but they've done it far more tyrannically as they've taken down their debt. Um, they are not, consumers are simply not willing to, you know, go into periods where they're concerned about jobs, job security, longevity in their jobs uh, with a high debt load. So um, the percentage change down here is very, very low. Um, now that's good and bad, you know, in the sense that it's good that there won't be a lot of people who are strung out on debt and you know, they miss a month or a week's worth of wages and they're going to start to default. Um, and you know, for the banks, they're not looking at any major write downs of, of credit, but the, the banks are also not making as much money through these through these loans because there are fewer of them. And also, this tends to you know hurt consumer consumer spending. So we have a you know, unlike two thousand and eight, where people were just enamored with debt. Uh, and had to dig themselves out of that hole for many, many years. This uh, the, the debt load here is extremely low, and people are trying to, uh, you know, reduce it as fast as they can. Consumer confidence. This is just you know measures how people feel about the, the economy. Took a big hit. Uh, levels are about 120 down to you know 83, 84. It's rebounded a little bit, but again, you can see the under 35s. I hope it's showing up a little bit. The uh, it's just the upper line. That took that they were way up here, 143, 144 on the index, and they're way down at 92. The over 55s have actually had a recovery, as have the general population. But again, the, you know, the under 35s uh, have um, have had big downward changes in confidence, and they haven't seen any improvement in that. A couple of bright spots. First one is that people are buying cars. Um, this is almost back to the peak in you know, the US roughly sells about 16, 17 million uh, in a good year. In a bad year, like 2009, it can go down to 10 or 11 million. Uh, and in fact, it dipped down there on an annualized basis back in March, but it's come back very, very quickly. Um, and I think this is, uh, you know, people who have jobs um, feel confident about um, buying a car. Also the credit terms and the prices of cars have come down a lot. Um, a lot of um, 
a lot of car manufacturers had high inventory levels, so there's some pretty good deals to be had in uh, in, the, in the summer months and even up till now. And of course, the other one is that people who um, worked and relied on public transport are now thinking that they don't want to do that, and so they're they're buying cars. So um, so so it's it's driven by um, good prices, good deals, easy financing, and also some changes in the way people are thinking about getting themselves to work. And then new home sales. This is again, um, that number is the number of new home sales, um, you know, hit um, uh, a million. Um, and the, so uh, that's close to 12 year, 13 year peak. Um, and again, this is a result of, you know, slowly as an up, uptick in new home sales. Um, they fell sharply in the first couple of months after COVID and now they've gone back up again. Again, this is people who are in jobs and are thinking of moving out of cities or thinking they're going to have to permanently upsize because they're using their front bedroom or their, their child's bedroom for, uh, for working at home activities. And so they're, they're, they're having to or they want to increase, um, uh, increase their living space. Um, so there's, um, this, is, this has been you know, pretty pretty good part of the market, um, and then mortgage rates you can get sort of mortgages at about three three percent or so. So, uh, so that's generally been a you know a bright a bright spot. And I think it continue will continue to be, although at some extent the uh, the, the the new houses uh, that are, that are being built needs to catch up with this because um, uh, the the number of new home sales is is exceeding the number of new houses being built. So there will be uh, some catch up on that side. So turning, uh, turning to the stock market, um, you know, I like to show this slide because uh, we see a lot of volatility in share prices. You know, as we always say, share prices change much more often than the fundamentals um, and try not to confuse the two. So we saw this big uh, downturn in the market. You know, this black line went from 3,200 to whatever it was, uh, 2,400 in a, in a blink of an eye. Um, and uh, but on the earnings and dividend side, things have been pretty good. Um, the earnings, yes, we're in the process of seeing those fall, looking at about $122 versus about $145 for the, uh, for the S&P. Uh, most estimates have this number increasing, I think they're right, um, you know, quite rapidly uh, over the remainder of this year into 21, 21, 22. And some estimates have this number, the 122, uh, at about 200 uh, by the end of 2023, which brings the market valuation down from about 20 times to 16 times. Um, so gradually, you know, earnings are, you know, haven't, did not take as much a hit as the prices, did not take as much a hit as the economy. Um, and I think, uh, you know, we're, we're going to see some quite respectable increases in earnings per share for the stock market, you know, over the next um, uh, six to nine months, unless there's some, you know, huge setback that none of us can really predict. But at the moment, even if the Biden administration increases the corporate tax rate from 21 to 28, which I said they do over a number of years, as opposed to straight away, these earnings per shares are not dependent upon, um, you know, the, uh, the, the tax rate that much. Um, so I think we're going to see some positive numbers there. And on the dividends, certainly some industries, some companies, you know, decided not to pay dividends, airlines being an obvious one, the, air, the, the financials, the banks were told by the Fed, pretty unequivocal terms, not to do share buybacks or pay out dividends. So they have you know, reluctantly gone, gone along with that. But other than that, you know, dividends have held up pretty well. 
uh, we've kind of gone from about uh, 50, sorry, about 63, $64 a share to 59. Now, a lot of companies in the S&P don't pay dividends, about 120 of them don't. Um, and some of the bigger ones certainly don't, um, like you know, Amazon and Facebook and Google. But for those that do rely on dividends, the, this has not been you know, a huge, uh, a huge concern and, um, and uh, a lot less than the collapse that we saw around about 2008, 2009, which is driven by financials of all. We're seeing a slightly better showing in small cap. I just checked these numbers from when we met a month ago. So the top five companies continue to power ahead. These are the Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, Google, um, and who am I missing? Amazon. Uh, um, yeah, those, those are the, the big five guys. This has been very much a, a market led by them in terms of their profitability, their ability to benefit from the work from home, buy from home um, trends, cloud storage, uh, people wanting to upgrade their devices, all these things you know, play right into the hands of, uh, of these tech companies, which are hugely, hugely profitable. Um, and despite the uh, this kind of moves to re-regulate them, and there was this big report that came out last week from one of the House subjudiciary committees or subcommittee on judiciary, I can't remember which, but anyway, it's available. There's a link to it on our site. It's 440 pages. I wouldn't bother to try and read it, but the bottom line is that they think that uh, four out of the top five, uh, so that's not Microsoft, but uh, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, and uh, Google, uh, are also practicing um, uh, uh, market competitiveness, which is need, needs some scrutiny. Uh, now, whether or not it comes to break up or anything else, don't know. These usually, these usually things take years and years and years to come about. Um, I mean, the there's just only been recently a settlement against Tyson Foods and another company, I can't remember which, you know, for, uh, for fixing uh, chicken prices. And uh, this was very blatant. And they, you know, they, they, they were the three of the companies that owned 80% of that market and they, and they, um, and they, they price, they price managed and it took 12, case took 12 years to, to, to come to fruition. So um, this will take a long time. The broader market has begun to come up a little bit. There you can see that the S&P 100, top 100 companies uh, up a little bit. And then the small companies at the, and mid cap, that's the two bottom ones, the black line and the kind of white line have done, uh, have, have picked up quite a bit recently in the last month. You can see there's a nice uptick to that. So they're beginning to close some of the gaps which they had before. So it's been a large cap story. It's been a mega cap story. Small and mid cap seems to be certainly getting better. But overall, if you kind of look at the S&P 500, which is capitalization weighted, so you know the uh, top five companies account for 15, 20% of the index, the, the, the so-called FANG, so you throw in Google and um, sorry, uh, Netflix and NVIDIA and a few others like that, um, it has powered the market up to about 9.1, up 9%, this is you know, index from January. But the median price of the S&P, which is the equal weight, where every company is just 0.2% of a portfolio, is still down. So, um, so there's still a lot of catch up for the broader market to, uh, to, to work. And we will be one for looking for a more dispersed type of recovery uh, as we kind of go into the um, fourth quarter and, the, uh, and into the new year in the stock market. Um, this is interesting because we take the uh, the energy and financials, which is have lagged terribly, 
at the bottom blue line and not just for 2020 they've lagged for a number of years now uh, you know energy used to be around about 16 percent of the s p it's now around two and that's you know all the chevron and exxons and Philips 66 and a bunch of other companies have just had a miserable time uh, and they've become a far less important part of the stock market on a stock market weighted basis same with financials uh, whereas the tech and consumer have kind of powered ahead. So this is, you could argue, old economy, new economy, doesn't really matter how you define it, but uh, there are some, some areas which have really continued to do very well. And there's some, some industries like energy and financials where it's very difficult to see them you know, moving uh, powerfully ahead um, given the headwinds they're facing uh, on, a, on a secular or even a regulatory basis. Mentioned earlier about stocks really not being influenced by elections. Now, this sounds sort of counterintuitive, but it's kind of went back and looked at election years and you can see some, you know, mostly they're up and there are a few which are down, 2008 being a, being a big one. But they aren't necessarily because of what's going on in the election. There's uh, some, some other powerful forces. Uh, 2008, obviously in the middle of the huge crash, um, of the financial and property markets. And uh, in 2000, a similar you know, big correction coming out of tech, which started you know, in early 2000 and just happened to accelerate after the election uh, in November. And actually these numbers aren't very different from the broader, broader markets. So I would say that um, uh, we're probably gonna be in for a little of a bumpy ride, but I think the, the, the market is sort of pricing in the economic and business fundamentals, which are you're probably more important than than who gets in but but if there's a again because their economic policies are not that different they, they might be different in terms of how they're executed or what they say but the net result for the economy and the markets are not that different uh so i i think uh, the market's more worried about uh okay is this going to be a prolonged um kind of negotiated election and if so that's going to mean that consumers are are, are going to be concerned about spending and getting out there so yeah, this is the kind of big update for where we are in uh, in kind of going into the uh, last couple of months. We still think that U.S. large caps will remain in focus, partly because of tech. I mean, these are money-making machines, and they're monopolies or very near it. I mean, uh, Google, ninety percent of the market. So Facebook, similar number for uh, for social, um, you know, social sort of interactions uh, um, on the internet. Uh, Apple, I know, 70, 80% of the um, operated, mobile operating system market in the US and about 60% um, in, the, in the rest of the world. And between them and Android, that's about it. There's a few other, maybe Nokia and, and, and Blackberry are still around somewhere. I don't know, but, but they aren't really relevant anymore. Um, Amazon, depending on how you measure it, you know, retail sales, uh, pretty large. I mean, they would argue that they've only got 10% of total retail sales, which is about right. Um, but in terms of internet retail sales, they've got a much bigger number and they're pretty ruthless competitors. But you know, we'll see whether or not they, they uh, you know, whether the, reg the re-regulation hurts them at all. I don't think it will, I could be wrong on that, but uh, I think that these companies are, you know, are, are very dominant businesses. Um, I think we're gonna get more October surprises. Uh, you know, those of you who've been around remember these from you know, 1972 when there was a peace announcement initiative by Kissinger about three weeks before the election. Uh, and then there was the, uh, there was the ones in 1980 to do with the hostages. And of course there were plenty of them in 2016 with the emails and the, uh, and the FBI reports and things like that. So who knows, there could be others. Um, uh, just, you know, hold on. <laughs> we're, 
we're not taking any aggressive new positions um, going in for the next uh, two or three weeks. We continue to sort of add a lot of protection onto the stock market. I think international's on kind of a slow upward bend. Um, it's getting slightly better, particularly uh, Europe, Japan's still a bit sleepy. Um, we do see a kind of lower dollar in the future, um, mainly because of trade issues um, and people wanting to diversify out of the do dollar, but uh, that's gonna be slow. It's actually helped us a lot on the international side the last month or so. We are worried about the permanent job losses increasing. I think I've talked about that, but also rates really gonna remain very low for a very long time, especially at the short end. The Fed still has a lot of tricks it can, it can do. I say tricks, I don't mean in a bad way. I mean, there's a lot of tools that a central bank can do, which they haven't done yet. Um, others have, so they've, they, it gets a bit technical, but they can sort of do things like buy at different parts of the market. They can buy equities, they can buy REITs, they can buy all sorts of things. Um, and they can give a lot more, uh, uh, you know, overt direction about what they're gonna be doing. So the central bank is, uh, Federal is on a you know, full ease mode and possibly, you know, could do more. Uh, we are looking for income replacement for consumers. They've got a big number coming out of the, about a trillion dollars worth of spending has been taken out of the economy on an annualized basis since July. So that's got to be replaced. I don't think it's going to happen until the new year, unfortunately. Um, that's probably got some implications for rents and spending. I think we might see an uptick in uh, rent forbearance um, in the next couple of months. Um, I don't know whether that will be, uh, you know, people being evicted because in this market, who are you going to rent to? And in, uh, uh, there are still you know, some big restrictions about evicting tenants, either both on a federal and on state and on a local level. So uh, it might not be great for landlords who have those types of properties, but um, uh, but I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's going to be a big you know social concern with 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 people having to uh, you know miss their rents and then and then finding themselves uh, out on the streets i might be wrong but uh, at the moment i think the physical support is coming uh, it's a question of waiting for it <clears throat> and uh, so i don't think we're going to see a lot of foreclosures and credit card debt as i mentioned is really not a thing right now um, but everything really depends on the reopenings and the pace of that and not just on the formal reopenings as you know things can reopen but people can still voluntarily distance they can say well yeah, this sports event, this music event, this restaurant, this hotel may all be open for business as normal, but you know, I, we, our family doesn't really want to take on that level of risk exposure. So they kind of self-discipline and, and, and spend less. And so that's going to take a long time to get back in, uh, you know, if and when there's a vaccine. Well, I'm sure there will be. There are, there are three which are in pretty good in trials right now. There's another 15 right behind them. There'll be, there will be a vaccine, but... Uh, in a question of when is, uh, of course, a big open-ended question. And finally, for those of you, for you know, our clients, we have put a lot of protection on the portfolios. Those of you know, we use buffer notes, we use treasuries, probably keep on our treasury position, at least through the election. They don't yield very much, but boy, if there's a problem in the markets, that's the first place people will go to. So for the moment, you know, treasuries are important, pretty part of our bond portfolio. We might begin to think how we change that over the next six to nine months. So hang in there. There's uh, um, there's uh, going to be, a, a, again, a lot of volatility, you know, whatever the October surprise is, I wish I could predict that, but uh, there'll be one and we aren't done yet. So um, uh, it will be, it will be tricky, but I do think that the, the market's uh, uptake has been impressive, good, well warranted. Uh, we're going to write about that in our quarterly report. There's, you know, it's absolutely well substantiated by what companies are doing and how much they're earning. And, uh, and 
so we're not we're not concerned about you know the overvaluation of the market. But as I said, just uh, hang on for a, a few months of um, of high volatility. That's it. I think we have a cut a couple of questions. Um, I'm going to uh, see if I can find that. Let's see. Um, I, think I might have to stop the share, and then you'll be able to see everything that's on my computer. Um, uh, or not see okay let's have a look um see if there's a question here here we go um uh great info looking at point number seven your update slide concerning likely volatility what are the plans for your portfolio strategy in the next three to six months i think i uh, hopefully i've touched on a little bit of that i think um we continue to like these buffer notes these are the notes which provide market uh participation on the upside um, and also, uh, more importantly, you know, protect on the downside. So we see some pretty good deals on those. Uh, most clients probably got a five or six percent position in that. We also have uh, things like the dividend aristocrat portfolios, which we think are inherently less volatile than the market as a whole. Um, and then, as I mentioned, on the treasury side, uh, we used to have a, you know, a, a large exposure to treasuries directly. Uh, in the seven to 10 year space, but also through our bond ladder. If you haven't got one of those, please uh, give us a call or your wealth advisor a call. Uh, and then I think we'll kind of see, see how that works out through the election. And then at that point, you could probably find some um, slightly better deals on the credit side and seven to 10 year treasuries. But for now, it feels awfully good to have them if there's a, if there's a, a, a political um, uh, uh, mess, uh, then treasuries are going to um, going to have a, 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 a pretty good run. Um, how would you honestly rate your performance with regards to the portfolios that you made year to date during the pandemic? What worked and what didn't? Um, that's a difficult question because people, people have different portfolios um, based on their risk tolerances. Some people have more cash. Um, so there isn't, it's difficult to point to a typical portfolio. I think, uh, what we did was we moved into uh, a selected tech portfolio that's done very well. Um, we reduced a little bit of our holding in Berkshire. That, so that was a good switch that we made. Um, we could have, uh, yeah, um, we, we could have maybe brought our small company exposure down because they had a kind of a six month underperformance, but that started to come right. So I'm not too concerned about that. Um, and on the on the bond side, we were probably you know the treasuries did all of their work in February and March, and we did really well. They're up like eleven or twelve percent. Since then, they've been relatively flat. We could have done a little bit more on the corporate debt side, but hey, you know corporate debt can move like equities, and so you've kind of got a double double exposure if you're on the equity side and loaded up on corporate debt. And for now, we're not out of the woods uh, either on COVID or on the political side. So um, yeah, we could have got a, maybe you know eked out a few more basis points of return, but it would have been with a, you know, quite a bit more risk. Um, and I think uh, the other thing, uh, yeah, I mentioned the, the, uh, the notes have, have done pretty well and we weren't caught in any, 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 any uh, parts of the market which have taken a real, a real beating like you know, energy and, and financials. So like all, all portfolio strategies, we just done more of the good stuff and less of the bad stuff. But on the whole, I think we're, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of okay with, um, with what we've done for clients and, and hope you are as well. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, 
Um, okay, where does the financial health of the state of California and its municipalities have any impact on your portfolios? Rode Caltrain during the rush hour this AM and had a whole car to myself. That must be a money pit. Ah, good, good question. Um, we actually, the state of California is actually in reasonably good shape, primarily because of what Jerry Brown did on the reserve fund side. So uh, there's still a fair amount of you know, general obligation cash uh, available. I mean, yes, California is going to be hit. Um, California revenues typically come from um, income tax and capital gains, and then some residual from property tax. Um, and, and then the others are kind of you know, like normal fees and stuff like that. But so, yeah, I think uh, something like um, a, a transit bond is obviously going to have a harder time than a general obligation bond. But it's not across the across the um, spectrum. You know, the Golden Gate side. I'm pointing because they're down there. They're doing okay. I mean, you know, volume and traffic is down on their ferries and on the bridges, but they're they're not down. You know, as much as an empty Caltrain uh, truck uh, car. I don't think. And it's the same with schools. Some schools are in very good districts and well supported and still being financed well, even though they might be operating on a you know semi open, semi closed basis. Um, so you've got to really kind of pick your you know pick your cities, pick your revenue uh, source and, um, and pick your credit. Um, and then others like tied to um, utilities, particularly water, electricity, they're kind of fine. Um, but generally California credit is pretty well sought after. The big four munis municipal uh, issuing states, Texas, New York, Pennsylvania, am I missing? Um, probably Illinois, uh, you know, they're considered one of the best. Um, so I think California's spreads on California munis have come in quite a bit. They're a little bit wider today than they were a few months ago, um, but generally they've been, they've been pretty good. So I guess the question, the answer is it depends. Good. Well, I think, uh, um, I think that's uh, some, thank you. Uh, thank you, you're very welcome. Um, so thank you very much, everybody. Uh, we will be posting this on our website, I think. I hope I'm not um, um, wrong on that one. But uh, as always, if you, um, if you have any questions, uh, please uh, call us at the general number or your financial advisor. And now, uh, so very nice to see everybody and we'll see you next time. And I will now read the disclosure. So here we go. Discussions of the investment, investment strategy, research, investment process of Brown Janikowski are of the date indicator as of the date of this presentation, subject change without notice. Charts illustrated throughout this presentation may be updated periodically. We have no obligation to provide advised assessments in the event of changed circumstances. We cannot assure that the types of investments mentioned in this presentation will produce the intended results or outperform any other investments in the future. We reserve the right to change our investment perspective and outlook without notice as market condition dictates as additional information becomes available. Diversification does not protect the investor from market risk, does not ensure a profit. Information is subject to unintentional errors, emissions and changes without notice. All sources are from faxes unless otherwise noticed. While we gather this, unless noted otherwise, while we gather this information from sources we believe to be reliable, we cannot guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any statements or numerical data in this presentation. References to individual security should not be considered as a recommendation about sell that security. Securities note this presentation or any several successful and unsuccessful investments by Brown, Janikowski, and do not represent all the securities you have purchased, sold, or recommended. The next returns include reinvested dividends interest, do not reflect commissions or transactions costs. Mutual fund returns include reinvested dividends and capital gains distributions. 
Future funds are our net of the fund's expenses. However, they do not reflect Brian Janikowski's fees. Please read the prospectus carefully before investing or sending money. Past performance no guarantee of future results. You may reference various hypothetical investment illustrations. These are for illustration purposes only, not investment recommendations, do not guarantee indication of future results.